Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And He said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Along with the rise of technology in the 21st century, we have witnessed the rise of its misuse. People who take advantage of others as a way of life have migrated to using the internet to rob unsuspecting people. Anyone who has an email address has gotten messages from someone claiming to be in need. A nobleman in the UK needs to transfer millions of pounds to a US account, and if you can help him, the payout will have you set up for life. Or emails claiming that you have won the lottery or some other sweepstakes, strangely one that you never even entered, And to claim the prize, you must pay the required fees. Or emails that appear to be from some government agency claiming you owe a large amount in back taxes and you must call this 1-800 number to get it all sorted. These claims are all fraudulent, of course, and yet they deceive many people. And these online scammers usually target a certain demographic. They are looking for men and women age 65 and older. The reason is that senior citizens tend to be less computer savvy than most, and they tend to be more trusting that the other person, that the person on the other side of the email or the telephone call is telling them the truth. Just to show you how much these scams have increased, in 2018, 62,000 people age 65 or older reported falling for an online scam. The total in loss was $649 million. And just three years later, that number jumped to 92,000 victims, which is a 30% increase, with a total of $1.7 billion in losses, which is an almost 40% increase. So not only did the total number of victims go up, but the average amount of money surrendered toward the scammers went up as well. Meaning these thieves online are getting more sophisticated and their scams are producing a larger payout. Romance scams were responsible for the greatest losses, with scammers preying on lonely people, often widowed, whereby they create a fake profile and a false identity, building trust and feigning love, all with the hope of convincing their victim to send them money. They need help with medical bills or travel expenses or they need a reliable car. And so these unsuspecting people who have just fallen in love with this person, they've never met in person, are left not only broke, but broken-hearted. The second highest among the elderly are 
called tech support scams. These cons are designed to convince the victim that they must provide access to personal information such as bank and retirement accounts so as to avoid serious loss. These men pretend to work for tech companies or financial institutions and they scare their victims into transferring their money into separate accounts due to safety concerns. Rich Brune, a 75-year-old retiree living in Virginia, fell for an online scam last year that cost him nearly $800,000. Criminals posing as Microsoft workers contacted him online and told him that his computer had been hacked, his financial accounts were compromised, and he needed to take action immediately. Over a five-month period, Brune said he was instructed to transfer much of his life savings into a cryptocurrency account that the scammers told him was safe from the purported hackers. To make matters worse, after his money vanished, as did the scammers, the IRS informed him that he owed approximately $200,000 in taxes because of the withdrawals he made from his retirement accounts. Forced to take out a reverse mortgage, Brune said, as soon as I pay off the IRS, I will be virtually penniless. Another case was Marjorie Bloom, a retired civil servant who was the victim of a tech support scam in 2021. In a similar fashion, Bloom, now 77, lost her life savings of $661,000. And there are reports like these of people who have been victimized in, in the thousands. Add to that, there's a large percentage of people who are taken advantage of and they never report it because they're embarrassed or ashamed that they could be so gullible. Now, hopefully, when you hear these kinds of things, it makes you angry. It should make you angry. Greedy men preying on the vulnerable and stealing everything out from under them, leaving them desperate and destitute, is a despicable crime against humanity. But as evil as those things are, there is a scam that tops them all. People who rob others of their resources and they do it in the name of God. These, too, prey on the vulnerable to satisfy their greed, and they do it all pretending it's the Lord's work. And I could give you a list of names of men and women who surrendered all of their money to some televangelist or some religious charlatan, but instead of giving you modern examples, I will give you one from ancient history, and it happens to be the subject of our text today. The widow's might is our passage. That's what it's been called. And it's where a woman puts in her last two pennies. And this text has often been touted as a text on sacrificial giving. And the widow is shown as an example of faithfulness. But I would like to persuade you this afternoon that I don't believe that is what is being taught here at all. I think what is found here in Luke 21 is the depiction of a victim. The victim of a religious system. 
Now, in the first century, there was no internet. There were no fake creditors. There were no people masquerading as tech support to deceive the elderly. But there were still deceivers, bilking people out of their money, all under the guise of religion, all in the name of God. If you were here last week, we saw that Jesus condemned the scribes for a religious scam that targeted the weak. They went after widows and they found a way to steal their property right from under them. They robbed these women of their homes and to cover their greed, they prayed long prayers giving the illusion of righteousness. And here in the very next scene, we see an example of how a oppressive this religious system was and who it hurt the most. Now, as we consider this text, I'm reminded that there's a certain danger when it comes to familiar passages. I read the passage on the widow's might and you think, oh yeah, I know this one. I've read this a hundred times. I've heard sermons about this text. And The danger is that we think we understand and we move along and we don't really think about it too critically. We think here that Jesus points to this widow as an exemplary exemplary example of sacrifice. How she gives here is how we should be giving. But as we study this passage today, I want to give you an entirely new perspective on this widow and her offering. And I believe the context determines how we are to understand this scene. So, let us consider the context. If you remember, for the majority of chapter 20, Jesus is confronted by various religious leaders, and they approach him, and they question him, and they attempt to trap him in his words. And after they're completely unsuccessful, Jesus has a question for them about the coming Messiah. And they fail to answer his question, and he immediately turns to warn the people about the evils of the religious leaders in Israel. And I had Richard read all of Matthew 23 last week, because that is a parallel passage where Jesus goes through all of these condemnations of the scribes and Pharisees for all of their crimes against the people. So that is what has come before our text. Jesus denounces the scribes. He says they are thieves and hypocrites. Then you get into chapter 21 and verses 1 through 4, and we have this little vignette about a widow and her giving. And then after this, we're going to see in the following weeks, the rest of chapter 21 is about God's judgment that is coming against this religious system. He describes in detail how the temple is going to be destroyed. The people need to flee the city when this is coming. God's going to wipe the whole thing out. So you're going to have... 33 verses in chapter 21 which describe God's wrath against Israel because of those corrupt leaders. And that begs the question, why, sandwiched in between these two passages, 
where you have the condemnation of the religious leaders before it, and you have the coming destruction of the city and the temple after it, why on earth would Jesus give a brief little teaching between those two on sacrificial giving? I mean, if the point of the widow's offering is to teach us how we are to give, why is it sandwiched here between the warning against religious corruption and the prophecy of coming judgment against the nation? What does this have to do with anything? Prior to this scene with the widow, Jesus says the religious leaders are evil and they are hypocrites. And then following our text, he goes into great detail about what God is going to do to them because of the things that they do. And for some reason, Jesus decides this would be a good place to teach his disciples about sacrificial giving. That doesn't make any sense. You have probably, if you've heard any sermons on this text, you have probably heard God looks at your heart when you give. Like that's the point. Or we are to give until it costs us. We are to give sacrificially. And maybe some other related ideas to giving. And while all those things might be true, I don't believe that is the point of the text here. Jesus points out this widow for an entirely different reason, and I want to persuade you of that this afternoon. So why don't we read our text once again and consider what it says. Luke 21.1 Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And He said... Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. This same account is found in two of the Gospels, Mark and Luke. And in both Mark and Luke, you have the same sequence of events. You have a conflict with the religious leaders. You have the widow and her offering. And then you have the coming judgment against the nation. Matthew has the same sequence, but he does not record the widow's offering. So in Matthew, you have two of the three. You've got the condemnation of the religious leaders and you have the coming judgment against the city and the temple and no mention of the widow in between. So that means in the three synoptic Gospels, you virtually have the same sequence of events. In two of the Gospels, they're an identical sequence. In one of the Gospels, they're nearly identical. They're missing the widow's offering. Now, because these are all in this particular order, that leads me to think these things happened in this particular order. The the Gospels are not always in chronological order, but because these multiple accounts contain the same sequence, I think it's fair to assume 
this happened exactly as it's recorded in this order. And I think that's important. Wednesday night at our Bible study, someone asked the question about chapter divisions and verse numbers. Were those in the original manuscripts? And so we sort of got into a conversation about why are there chapter divisions, why are there verses if they're not in the originals, because they're not. They were added a thousand years later for obvious reasons to help us find parts of the Bible. Instead of just referencing, you remember that part of Isaiah where he says something about the angels and the throne? You could have a reference point and say, oh, that was Isaiah chapter 6. Now, most of the time, chapter divisions are very helpful. They, they, they help us find things. They seem to segment uh, the, the, the text for us. But sometimes, I think, they are unfortunate because they cause us to miss important points that the writer is making. And I want to argue that if you were to remove that chapter division with between 20 and 21, so if you take 21 out of the way and you just keep on going like it's chapter 20, you're going to see more clearly what I think you ought to see in this passage. So to help you, I'm going to read a couple verses before it and see if you notice something. Let's go back to chapter 20, verse 46. Jesus said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. Now you can stop right there. I'm just trying to make a point here. What do you see if you remove the chapter division? Within a span of two verses, he mentions poor widows two times. That should get our attention. In chapter 20, verse 47, verse 47, he mentions the crime of the scribes against the widows, making them poor. And in chapter 21, verse 2, we see an example of it. In 2047, he claims that they rob the vulnerable, and in chapter 2, verse 2, he substantiates that claim. Now, I I still have to persuade you that this is what it's talking about, so hang in there. Now, I mentioned last week, that was the final, what we saw last week, the the denunciation of the scribes was the final public discourse that that Luke records for us. So, the end of chapter 20 is the final public discourse recorded. And then in 21, it's disciples only. And in fact, in Mark's Gospel, he makes it even more clear. It says, Jesus called his disciples to himself before he points out the widow and her offering. So previously, he was teaching the people. He warns them against the scribes. And then he gathers his disciples. They have a seat and he points something out to them that's just teaching them. 
And Jesus wants them to see something. So they sit and they watch. And Jesus uses this opportunity. And let me help you picture this scene. So the temple's obviously a very large complex. And there was a treasury in the temple. And this is a place that the religious leaders designated for your giving. So the people were required to tithe, of course. They were required to pay a temple tax. And there was a variety of other offerings that they could give to. And rather than just having a general fund, like one big offering plate, they had designated boxes for all of these different payments or taxes. And then atop of all of these boxes, they had these trumpet-shaped receptacles where you could drop your coin in and then it would go down this trumpet-shaped tube and into that respective box. And in the temple, there were 13 of these. So here's the temple, big, large courtyard. There's the area for giving. And there's 13 of these boxes all set out. And this is not happening in some secret place toward the back. This is in the middle of a very large thoroughfare where lots of people would be milling around. It's the largest court uh, at the temple. So you've got 13 of these. One is the temple tax. One is for uh, renovation of the temple. One is for gold. One is for wood. One is for incense used in the temple. And you've got all of these various needs. Some of them are required by people to give and some are above and beyond what you are required to give. And the scribes and the Pharisees made a big deal out of giving. They taught that the bigger the gift, the greater one's approval. So if you are one who gives generously, that is a sign that God is pleased with you. You have God's favor. How could you not? And because this was so important to them, they put this in a very visible area in the temple so that lots of people would be around and lots of people could see who is giving. Jesus took an issue with this in his Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, because the Pharisees would give in such a way to make sure everyone noticed that they were giving. He said to his disciples in Matthew 6, 2, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So when the Pharisees and scribes gave, whether it's in the temple or whether it was out in the streets, they wanted to make sure everyone knew that they were giving. And so they demonstrated this by making a trumpet, announcing it with a trumpet. So, my point here is that this was put in a place where it was very visible. And Jesus tells the people the opposite thing. When you give, don't be like that. Don't make a big deal out of it. In fact, do it secretly. So secretly that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. Obviously, hyperbole to mean it's going to be that secret. So they put it in a place that was very heavily populated. And multiple ancient accounts tell us that 
when the coins were dropped through these particularly trumpet-shaped receptacles, it made a particular sound based on the type of coin that you dropped in. So that you could tell by the sound that it made what kind of coin someone put in there. So you've got all these people milling around. You've got all of these places that you are to give. And people can see and hear what's going on and how much you give. There would be a kind of religious pressure to give more maybe than you might. Now, just a reminder, the scribes and Pharisees are not interested in people. Jesus says that in all of his denunciations against them. But they are very interested in how much money people give. It's always about the money with false religious systems. It's always about the money. Jesus said this on more than one occasion. False teachers are regularly described in Scripture as being filled with greed. They are covetous. They are never satisfied. They want more and more and more. Last week I mentioned the epidemic of charlatans in Kenya. These men who masquerade as ministers so that they can be rich off vulnerable people. And I mentioned what an awful and horrible and disgusting thing that is. The Bible speaks a lot about false teachers and money. Second Peter, he warns believers against these types. Second Peter 2.3, he says, In their greed they will exploit you with false words. A little bit later in the same chapter, 2 Peter 2.14, they entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. So, Jesus, I'm, I mean, I'm not reading between the lines here. Jesus says these men are lovers of money. And it's no surprise that these leaders would make a big deal out of giving they love the attention that it brings them, and they want these things out in public so people feel pressured to give to their system. Now, just an aside, I've always appreciated how we do not pass the plate here. I've always felt uncomfortable ever since I was born again about the whole thing. It's like you can see who's giving and who's not giving, and I appreciate that our church does not do that. I don't think... It's a sin if churches do that. I personally just don't like it. So when I came here, I was glad that we didn't do that. Giving is a secret thing between you and the Lord. It should not be under compulsion or pressure. So this is the setting in the first century. Jesus and his disciples are sitting in the temple. They see this very poor member of Israelite society, the most vulnerable, we talked about widows a little bit last week. If they do not have a male relative to provide for them, they are destitute and they are hopeless. And here's this widow and it's her turn to give her money in one of these offering boxes and she puts in two coins. These coins are the lepta in the Greek. They're called lepta. It's the smallest coin as far as size that they had in Israel, but it was also the smallest denomination. So it was the least amount of money. 
A lepta was one one-hundredth of a drachma, and a drachma was equivalent to the day wages of a laborer. So one one-hundredth of what someone might earn working in the field that day. So we're not talking about a significant amount of money at all. It's barely anything. And here's where the misunderstanding comes in with our text. <clears throat> Notice what Jesus says and what he does not say as he observes this. We're going to read two verses, and I want you to notice what he says and what he does not say. Look at verse 3. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance... But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. A couple of months ago, we looked at a text about most misapplied Bible verses. Don't know if anyone remembers that. It was a text that people apply to speaking about heaven when it's actually speaking about the new birth. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, etc. Hopefully you remember that. I feel like this could be one of the most applied Bible texts because of what it assumes. It assumes that Jesus is commending her for this sacrifice. Isn't that an assumption you are bringing to that? These others gave a lot, but none as much as this woman... And we assume she's pointing her out as this is something wonderful. She gave it all and therefore her gift was the best. Or her gift was the most honoring to God. Or her gift was the most generous out of them all. But did he say any of that? No. He made two observations. One. She gave more than the rest, obviously speaking of percentage, in relation to what she had. She gave 100%. Even though it was two pennies, it's more than all the rest. And two, it was all that she had. That is the extent of what Jesus said about this. Now let me point out three things about his commentary on her giving and notice what he does not say. Jesus never commends her for her gift. He doesn't say it was good. He doesn't praise her for her sacrifice. He doesn't say anything about it being honorable or righteous. He just tells us what she did and describes her financial situation. That's it. Secondly, he doesn't describe her attitude in her giving. Now, Jesus is always about the heart. He sees the hypocrites and he says, they're hypocrites. But he doesn't say anything about her heart. He doesn't say anything about her motives. Nothing about whether she gave out of guilt or pressure or out of desire or devotion. 
He doesn't point out that her love for God is what made her give so sacrificially. He just observes that she did that. That's it. She could have given because she loves God with all of her heart, mind, soul, and strength. And she trusts that God's going to take care of her that day when she, need, when she needs dinner that night. Or she could have given because she has a works righteousness idea of salvation from a religious system that has drilled into her that it is up to her to gain heaven. And it is by her sacrifice that she will be saved. It doesn't say. It doesn't say one way or the other. Third, he doesn't point to her as an example for us to follow. He doesn't tell his disciples, you should give like she gives. In fact, never in any of the Gospels does Jesus tell the one with the money bag, which was Judas, to give all of the money away. A hundred percent of it. They could have done it. He never says that. He doesn't say that the other people who made offerings, their gifts were inadequate compared to hers. He doesn't praise her for the gift or condemn the others for the gifts that they made. He just points out the amount relative to what she possessed. That's it. Now, I would argue that she would not be an example for us to go by giving 100%. Why on earth would God want you to give 100% of everything you have? Does Jesus call us to leave our lives behind and follow Him? Does Jesus call us to be willing to forsake everything to follow Him? Absolutely. But does God expect anyone to give everything to their church? Everything they have to live on to their church? Does God require 100% of giving to be the greatest example of sacrificial giving? I mean, don't many of the Proverbs that speak about money go against that? All of those Proverbs that tell us to be shrewd and financially wise and to think about the future and the prudent man sees danger and takes refuge and all of this, uh, the righteous man not only saves up for his children but for his grandchildren. How do you reconcile that? If God looks at this sacrifice and says, that's what I want you all to do is to give 100% of what you have. Now, I suppose you could extrapolate a principle from this passage where giving according to your wealth is praiseworthy. I think we can recognize that if Bill Gates gives $1,000 to a church, that's very different than if you give $1,000 to a church. Right? So I think you could draw a principle here that you're not to give out of your abundance, but according to your abundance. Maybe you could use that text and make a principle there. But I don't think that is the point of Luke 21, 1-4 at all. It doesn't fit the context. Jesus just mentioned religious leaders robbing widows three verses before this. He just mentioned it. 
And it makes much more sense to see this as a denunciation of a religious system that bankrupts widows and leaves them literally penniless. It makes much more sense in light of what's to come in chapter 21, which is the condemnation of Israel and the destruction of the temple, that the destruction is coming because they do things like this. They rob widows. They've constructed a religious system that oppresses the most vulnerable in their society and they hang salvation over their heads to the point where a woman thinks between eating dinner that night and giving her money to the temple, she's going to give her money to the temple. She's broke and she's homeless and she still feels obligated to give it to these priests and these scribes and I imagine all with the hopes that she will gain eternal life. I mean, isn't that how people in false religious systems think about eternity? God's going to weigh your life on scales. If you have done more good than bad, then you're going to get in. And maybe this woman is thinking she's got to tip the scales in her favor. She's getting old. She could die soon. I'm just going to give everything I have. I mean, we know this is a system that is based on adherence to the law. You have to work the system, and if you work the system, maybe you will gain eternal life in the end. And you have religious leaders over you who have both the power to commend you or to condemn you. Or, let me ask you a different way if you think this is a righteous act. What would you think of a woman who gives all of her remaining money to some TV evangelist? You know some poor woman, she lost her husband, she is in need, and she gives all of the money that she has remaining to some charlatan on television. Would you think that's a praiseworthy thing? Or she gives it all to the Roman Catholic Church. Would you think that is commendable? Or would you weep that such a system exists? That a woman like this can be so deceived by it that she thinks that God would want her to do that. They were doing that in Martin Luther's day, by the way. They were robbing the poor to build these massive cathedrals. In Luther's day, it was St. Peter's Basilica. And they would sell indulgences. The Catholic Church would go around from town to town, village to village, and they would sell indulgences to poor people. And these indulgences could cut down their time in purgatory. So if they, the, the more indulgences they bought, the less time they would have to suffer in purgatory. Or those indulgences could be applied to people who have already died and are suffering in purgatory right now. Don't you want your Aunt Bessie to not suffer anymore? And so these poor people were being built out of all of their money so they could build these big, massive 
so-called testimonies to God. Is that something that's praiseworthy? Because I think what's happening in this scene is no different. I think what's happening in this scene is consistent with what Jesus just talked about in the previous passage and is consistent with all of the damnation that's coming against Jerusalem because of it. You know what else the text doesn't say? It doesn't describe Jesus' attitude toward this whole scene. We are not told if He's pleased because of her offering, if He's impressed by her great faith. Doesn't Jesus commend people's faith in the Gospels? Doesn't He say, I've never met someone who had such great faith? He doesn't say that here. Nothing is said about what He thinks about this. And I have a hunch about what he thinks here. And it's probably going to be unlike anything you've heard people teach on this text. I think this probably angered Jesus. I don't think Jesus was pleased with this scene at all. I think the reason that Luke records this for us right in the middle of these two condemnations of the religious leaders is to show us that Jesus is not pleased with this kind of thing. Why is God going to destroy their temple? Why in just a number of decades is God going to raise up this Roman army to completely decimate this structure to God where one stone will not be left on another? Why is all that going to happen? We have a flesh and blood example right here in the temple itself. A poor widow and the last of her money. And God is angry because they not only robbed the most vulnerable in their society, but they did it all in the name of God. They drained the weak and the defenseless of every little bit that they had. And if stealing from vulnerable people makes you mad like those online scammers, those false promises that people can have safety or security or they could even have more if they trust that person, know for certain that it makes God angry. And it makes, it all, makes Him all the more angry when those things are done in His name. And that's what you have for the remainder of the chapter which we will look at next time. Thank You, Father, that You love us and that You've given us a Savior and that the Gospel is good news and it is unlike the religion of this world. It is not based on us giving everything we have, all of our money. It is not based on doing more good than bad. But it is based on the perfect righteousness of a substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, in our place. And I pray, Lord, as the Gospel continues to work in us and become more and more wonderful to us, that we would give more sacrificially. That we would spend ourselves more and 
serve others more and give more money, but not because we seek to gain something, but because we've given the greatest gift that could ever be given, everlasting life in the Son. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.